The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The following is an encore presentation of the Read to Lead podcast I've prepared especially for you. Today, I'm re-releasing what was originally episode 200 of the Read to Lead podcast. Itself, a look back at five very special interviews. As I take some time off, I hope you enjoy this special encore presentation of the Read to Lead podcast. Hi, I'm Todd Henry, author of Herding Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. Hone your leadership skills with every listen. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm Jeff Brown, and I began this podcast because I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key ideas and valuable insights from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And today, we have five of them. Wait, five? Yes, yes, five, actually. As I consider episode 200 a milestone episode, I'd like to take a bit of a look back. You may recall that in episode 100, I surveyed those first 100 episodes and revisited 10 of my favorite conversations and more specifically, the top 10 leadership lessons learned during that stretch. It's been over two years since the release of episode 100, and as I look back to episode 101 and all that's transpired since, I thought I'd do something similar. Today, I'm sharing highlights from five episodes over that span. Now, these episodes each touch on a topic that I think is so important, I ask a question related to it of nearly every guest that comes on the show. That's a hint. I'm talking about communicating, relating, and more specifically, public speaking. The art of public speaking and the ability to effectively relate to other people is as important, in my view, as any skill you can hone. In fact, if I weren't doing the Read to Lead podcast, I'd likely be doing a public speaking related podcast. Now, as we dig into each of these conversations, remember that you can visit the webpage I've created specifically for this episode. There you'll find links to the original and full conversations with each of these guests. And to make it super convenient, I'll be sure to mention each interview's specific URL on my site. Now, I'll begin with some hints. One of the five is originally from the UK. Two of the five are named Michael, and three of the five are current or former actors. It should be no surprise, I believe, that acting and relating and communicating effectively go hand in hand. It was in episode 106 when I asked Michael Port, the author of Steal the Show, to share what it means to perform in the context of public speaking or a job interview, a sales pitch, or any other high-stakes situation. To me, performing is about connecting. And the fear that people have around the word perform is that they think it means being phony Mm -hmm. or fake. But good performance is not about fake behavior. Good performance is authentic behavior in a manufactured environment. 
And many situations that we find ourselves in, many high stakes situations, of course, anytime we need to give a speech or run a team meeting or go on a job interview or negotiate or sell a product, those are high stakes situations. Mm. And some of them can make or break your career. So the way we perform during those high stakes situations will determine really the quality of our life. Mm. Well, share a bit about finding your voice. You talk about this a bit early in the book and, and how not to fall into the trap of, of thinking we don't have enough to offer. Yeah. One of the reasons we get so nervous about speaking in public is because we're afraid of being rejected. Otherwise, I'm not really sure why it's so scary. What are we afraid of? Because we're not going to die when we give a speech. I mean, unless we have a heart attack or something, we're not going to die because we gave a speech. <laughs> you know, maybe our hands will shake a little bit. We'll get you know, maybe a little red in the face, we'll sweat a little bit, things like that, but we're not going to die. So what are we afraid of? We're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of being told that we're wrong or bad, or we don't know enough, or that we're not enough, or we don't deserve to be in front of other people. And we need to work on silencing the critics, I think, Mm. because there are two types of critics. There are external critics and then internal critics. And the external critics, they're the critics in the cheap seats. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> they're the ones who they want to push others down to lift themselves up. And then there are the internal critics. And those are the critics in your head. Those are the ju- voices of judgment. Those are the ones that are telling you that you can't do the things that you want to do. And we will hear the external critics. They will be louder. The louder are internal voices of judgment are. But if the internal critic is quieted, then we don't hear the external critic quite as much. I mean, they're going to be there anytime you do anything in the world in a big way. Certainly anytime if you create, you know, if you're a creative artist of some kind, if you are an entrepreneur building something new, you know, people will criticize. That's just the nature of the world in which we live. I wish it wasn't, but it is. (laughs) And so the question is, you know, how loud are those voices to us? And so what we want to do is we want to work on silencing some of those inner critics. And, and the question that I often ask is, which is more important, approval or results? And our knee-jerk reaction usually is to talk, uh, to say, oh, well, no, results, of course. Mm. But I think if we, if we really reflect on it honestly and we look at the choices we make and the actions that we take, things we've done over the years or even yesterday, a lot of times we, we do things because we want to pat on the back <laughs> and we behave in a way uh, that is designed to get other people to approve of us. And sometimes that means watering our voice down or sometimes it means changing our voice. But your voice is your voice mm. and we don't want to water it down. We don't want to pretend it is something other than it is. We want our voice to be strong, but our voice we don't, you know, we don't speak so that other people say our voice is good or it's right, but we speak to be in service. So if your desire to be in service, if your desire to perform, if your desire to speak on something that is meaningful to you is greater than the fear you have of being rejected, well, then you'll do it. Then you'll get up on that platform in front of others and You'll put your message out in the world. But if your fear of being rejected is stronger than your desire to go out there and do it, then you might let the, the fear or those 
small voices, those voices of judgment in your head, water you down and really derail you from your plans, your dreams. How do you marry that, Michael, with uh, this idea you talk about later in the book with being a chameleon-like, which on the surface sounds like it contradicts finding your voice. Uh, so how do you be chameleon-like and true to who you are at the same time? And why is that ability so important? Sure. Life and creativity is filled with contradictions. And it was Fitzgerald who said something about that. He said, you know, something about, you know, uh, the intelligence of a man or the sophistication of a man or, of course, a woman, um, you know, is based on their ability to hold opposing ideas in their head at the same time and still be able to function. And this is one of those ideas. Sometimes when you hear the word chameleon, you think shapeshifter. Mm. And if somebody calls you a chameleon, the concern might be that you're somehow inauthentic. You know, you're pretending to be something that you're not. And I, I use this analogy specifically just to, just to provoke this idea because a chameleon is actually completely authentic. So when a chameleon is on a green leaf, it turns green. When it's on a red leaf, it turns red. It's not pretending to turn green. It didn't slap a coat of paint on itself. It actually turned green. That green color is part of its voice. It's part mm. of its DNA. And it changes according to the environment that it's in. Based on the part of their DNA that is most applicable, most appropriate, most helpful for that environment. So there's a chapter in Steal the Show uh, where I show people how to play the right role in any given situation. Because different situations often require different parts of our personality. Different interactions with different people require different styles of behavior. <laughs> different speeches require different styles of delivery. And so if we get comfortable with adapting our style to the given situation, as long as it is, part, it is still part of our personality. You know, we're amplifying different parts of our personality uh, in different situations based on what is most helpful to us. Then our voice is still true. Then we are still true to our beliefs. I'm not suggesting that you change your value system to try to fit in somewhere. Not at all. But what I am suggesting is that you are much more flexible than you might think. That you are more adaptable than you might think that you are more of a performer than you mm. might think. But we get wrapped up in an idea of ourself. We get wrapped up in the idea that we are certain, we are this one thing, or mm. we do this, but we will never do that. <laughs> you know, my, my fiance is a vegetarian. Well, if for some reason there was absolutely no vegetarian option in the world left ever, period. Mm. There was only meat. <laughs> well, she would start eating meat instead of dying. <laughs> She would. I, I know this for a fact. So, so we will change. We will adapt based on uh, what we uh, need to do at the moment. And eventually she actually might start to like meat after a while of eating it. So, so I, I, I'm just open to the fact that, and this is probably because, you know, I, I was an, a professional actor for years. And also one of the reasons I probably became an actor is because I was very comfortable uh, in being more fluid in terms of how I saw myself and in terms of the people that I surrounded myself with, I feel that I can hang out with the guys, the real rough guys down at the docks. 
and I can hang out with the librarians and my, my pacing, my tone, my language, my physicality, they will morph according to which group I'm in. Mm. It, it, but there's still parts of me. It's not like, okay, now I'm going to pretend that I'm this like rugged, tough guy. I'm not going to go in there. Yo, what's up? How you doing? You know, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I speak differently, but, mm. but some patterns will change. And I think many of us do that naturally. Yeah. Uh, but now the question is, can you uh, do it intentionally so that you can progress forward? You, you know, I did a few other podcast interviews today. And one of them I did in the morning was with a host who was, I'd say take our speed now and multiply multiply it by eight thousand. <laughs> he was like, "Hey, what's up? This is what we're gonna do." Blah, 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 blah. Boom, boom, boom. And if I paused for a second, he was just in there. Okay, so hey, you know, I was like, "Oh my god!" And it was great fun. It was really it was yeah. short. You know, you couldn't yeah. you couldn't sustain that for uh, for an hour, uh, but it worked for his show quite well. Mm. But I had to adjust my style in order to work well on that show. Your style is a little more sophisticated, a little more NPR-like, mm. um, more thoughtful, more deliberate. And so what I do is I bring out the different parts of my personality and style that would fit into your program to serve your audience. Because my assumption is that your audience resonates with your style. That's why they listen to your program. Mm. But I'm not you know, I'm not coming in here and going, well, how are you? I'm not changing any, my voice. I'm still, right. you know, right. So, anyway. I think that advice too, is for anybody who, who desires to appear on podcasts or who does so regularly needs to hear that uh, for sure. Cause I think, I think, I think you've really hit on something. Although maybe when I, when I grow up, I'll have, I'll have a voice like yours. That'd be cool. <laughs> right. Hello and welcome to, you know, I just, I can't get down that low. It's just, it's too good. It's too good. <laughs> One of my favorite teachers on the art of effective communication and public speaking is none other than Michael Port. Again, that entire interview is linked in the show notes page for this episode, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 200, or you can visit the episode directly at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 106. It was in episode 130 when we were introduced to Kathy Salit. Kathy is the author of a book called Performance Breakthrough, A Radical Approach to Success at Work. And Kathy is the CEO and founder of Performance of a Lifetime, a consulting firm specializing in helping leaders and companies with the human side of business and strategy. And similar to my first question to Michael, I asked Kathy to describe what she means by performance in the context of human relationships. I think that uh, we human beings have a natural capacity to play, to perform. We do it as kids, right? And we're supported to do it as kids. And, and it's a very important part of childhood. It's not just for fun that we run around the playground you know, pretending to be Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. It's also a way that we learn about how the world works. We pretend to be mommy, to be daddy, to be a fireman, to be a scientist and so on. And, and that kind of play is, uh, is really a, a very crucial part of uh, learning both how the world works, what's in the world, how we develop our interests, <laughs> mm. you know, things that we are excited by and are interested in that impact on us, you know, so that in terms of what we end up doing in our lives. And that play 
while we're supported to do that as little kids, there's a certain point where we're sort of told, stop playing, because now you have to start getting things right. Now you have to learn the rules. And, you know, you want to learn the rules. I mean, our parents are well-meaning when, when they say that, you know, like you need to know that when the light is red, you shouldn't cross the street and so on and those kinds of things. And But what often ends up happening is that the kind of play, imagination, and experimentation that we experience as kids um, – it, it, it sort of it goes to the wayside. Now we have to get into the knowing part of life, you know, the acquisition of knowledge and information uh, at the expense of the experimentation and the play. And so what what researchers and psychologists have have been discovering is that as it's very important for childhood, that kind of play and performance, it's also important for adulthood. And so what our work at performance of a lifetime, and what I talk about in the book is based on some of this research and discoveries. It's it's a field called performative psychology, mm. and the idea is that we we create our lives, we perform our way to growth. That on the one hand, we're impacted on by our environments, but we also are the creators of our environments. And so, performing it, it, it's sort of somewhat counterintuitive because Mm -hmm. what you're doing by performing on the one hand is you're not being yourself, you know, you're, you're pretending, you know, but, but you never stop being yourself. Uh, You're always who you are and who you are becoming, who you are not performing as an adult gives you a way to grow into who you are becoming to grow into who you are not yet. And that's, that's the, a very different kind of activity than, if you will, just reading a book about how to do something. So, for example, when people become parents, they don't know how to do that. People pretend to know how to be parents. <laughs> You're performing your way into it. I mean, yes, of course, parents read books and, you know, and you get all the help that you can, but... You, you figure it out while you're raising your, your kids. You learn how to do it in the performance of it, if that makes sense. Mm. And uh, so I think we can do that more in our lives, uh, in all aspects of our lives and our work. I like the example you gave in the book related to this. I think it was the uh, the child with the, on the bike and the training wheels are coming off and mom is behind him and he's sort of uh, learning to ride and and then fearful of it all at the same time. He's seeing his friends ride around and he wants to do that, but he doesn't know how to do it yet. Yeah, exactly. And he has to pretend to <laughs> to be a bike rider in order to become a bike rider. And mom is supporting him to do that. And that's a that's an important part of the picture too because there is somebody in the mix who's saying you can do that. And sometimes it's other kids and sometimes it's parents, but uh, you know, it's it's people you're being related to as who you are and who you're not yet. And that we call that um, in a, a performance of a lifetime. And I talk about this in the book. It's called the becoming principle. Mm. OK. And bike riding is sort of that's a universal experience that we all have. But that's whether you're leading a meeting, whether you're taking on a new job, um, whether you're starting a family, you know, all of these things require being who you are not yet, and performing and pretending helps you get there. Kathy's book, again, is Performance Breakthrough, A Radical Approach to Success at Work. The direct link to Kathy's episode is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 130. 
Three more interviews now to highlight, including the other Michael, a Brit, and arguably the most recognized person ever to appear on the Read to Lead podcast. We move next to episode 138, where my guest that episode was Michael Hudson, author of the book Public Speaker Secrets, 52 Proven Ways to Increase Your Impact Every Time You Speak. Now, at the time of this interview, I hadn't had a chance to meet Michael face-to-face, but since have, and I've had the chance to see him speak live, and it was well worth it. I learned a ton from hanging out with him that weekend. I started off by asking Michael about the power of simplicity when giving a public talk. I think a lot of us, when we get an opportunity to get in front of the room, however we got there, whether we work through a lot of fear of doing it and then finally got to that opportunity, or whether we're very comfortable and we just do it, it's very easy for us to fall into the complexity trap and we don't realize it's the complexity trap. Mm. We fall into it because we love ideas. <laughs> we love to think. Most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we forget that, right? Mm. And we get in front of the room and, you know, we become the person that we think we have to throw everything out because we're looking at the audience and saying, you know what? There's somebody out here who needs each one of these things and I got to share it all with them. That's the way I have the most impact. Mm. Well, that creates a complexity that makes people walk away going, and what did that speaker want me to do? <laughs> so, you know, the, I learned that lesson because I was that guy, you know, for the first, first 10 years or so of speaking that I was that guy. And, you know, uh, what happens when you do that, Jeff, is you get applause, uh, you get people to talk to you after the event, but you don't get hired back. Mm. And when you read evaluations, you hear things about people being confused. When you see people later, they go, you know, I remember hearing you speaking. It was great, but I don't know what there was there to what I did with it. It's like, well, that's because I didn't make it easy for you. Mm. So a lot of my drive for simplicity and my encouragement of people to make it simple is to focus it. You know what? I mean, I think, you know, when you walk into the room, you should know what the most wanted result is of your being there. What do you want those people to do because they heard you? I had Ken Davis uh, on the show early in, in, in the read to lead history. Mm-hmm. And uh, you may be familiar with his, his book, dynamic communication, I think is the, is the name of the book. Yes. Yeah, Secrets of dynamic communication. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And he talks about a survey in that book. I can't remember what the percentage was, but how the majority of people who leave presentations when asked have no idea what the presentation was about. Yeah. And, and I think Jeff, it's too easy for us, right? When we get, we now are in our comfort zone. We're where we want to be. So we're enjoying the fact that we're delivering, we're using our voice, we're using our emotions, all that stuff. And we're having a great time and maybe they're having a great time with us. But if they walk out and don't know what you said <laughs> and they don't know how it applies to them, unless you were just hired to entertain, you failed. Right, right. Well, I know that early in my radio career, I had a consultant or a talent coach. We called this particular gentleman. Us radio people love to be called the talent. <laughs> and he was, he was one of my talent coaches over the years. And one of the things he taught me in regard to addressing uh, topics on the radio was tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them that you told them. And, and this is something that comes up in, in Michael's book as well. And, and I've heard some of the same suggestions, Michael, that, that you've heard that that principle doesn't work any longer or isn't as effective. So why do you feel it's still as effective today as it ever was? Because, Jeff, I think we live it everywhere every day. Hmm. Um, you know, we're constantly being told what's coming. I mean, the weatherman tells you the weather forecast and in the middle says, and we're going to talk more about that in 20 minutes because we're, we're so conditioned. Plus there, there's the open loop thing, right? Mm. You're creating an open loop that makes them have to know the answer because they have to close the loop. 
Right. I think that when you step to the front of the room, you have to invite the people to listen. Just because they're sitting in that room doesn't mean they came to hear you speak. There's a lot of reasons why they showed up in that seat. Hmm. And you have to, to me, invite them to listen to you. Part of what the tell, tell, tell concept does, and you don't use the word tell, obviously, right? <laughs> right, right. You don't say, okay, I'm going to tell you this, and now I'm telling you this. But <laughs> you know, when, you, when you don't use it, people don't know where you're headed. And so you're basically inviting me on a journey, and I don't know where we're going or why I should come along. Hmm. So to me, it's a matter of looking at the tell, tell, tell as a guiding concept saying, okay, in my opening, I have to let them know something about where we're going that makes them want to listen. In my presentation, I have to deliver something that fulfills on that tease that I gave over here, but that also lets them know what I want them to do when they leave. And in your close, you want to come back to that and sort of, you know, bookend it, wrap it all together and issue that call to action so they know what you actually did want them to do. You know, and anybody who thinks this doesn't work, tune on your t- turn on your TV any night after the evening news mm-hmm. and watch one of those shows like, what, Entertainment Tonight or whatever those other shows are like that are mm-hmm. called that. That's what they do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. This is coming. Here it is. Oh, we didn't tell you all of it. Here's the rest. It must be working because <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're doing pretty well and been around for a long time, right? So right. <laughs> I think... I think if we model something that works that well, we're probably going to have a good impact. Well, talk about what it means to, in your words, Michael, own the room. Uh, how do we accomplish that? And share why you feel it's so important. Well, it's interesting, you know, Jeff, there are people who disagree with this 100%. You know, they say that what you want to do is you want to create a separation between you and your audience. You want to be the, you know, you're the guru, you're the specialist, you're the expert. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that's not my style, <laughs> first of all. But I think when you own the room, it it creates context, it shows that you care, and it increases your confidence. Because what you're doing when you own the room is you're saying, I'm responsible to these people in the room. Note the word there, responsible to, not for. But it it also erases that inherent discomfort, right, that people have. They're in a new place. They've never met you before. Mm. They may be at a conference they've never been to before, and maybe they don't have any friends with them. Well, you know, when you own the room, part of what owning the room to me means is you walk over and you say, hi, welcome, thanks for coming. And, you know, sometimes I'll do that and I'll introduce myself and sometimes I won't because it's always fun to walk up to the front of the room after you've been introduced as a speaker, after you've said hello to all these mm-hmm. various people and they go, oh, that was the speaker. But, but I also use it, Jeff, as a time to, you know, add a little local color to the presentation, a little bit of local color and flavor, if mm-hmm. you will. You know, if I have a two minute conversation with you, I welcome you. I thank you for coming. And I say, so what brought you in today? Or, you know, what, what made you pick this session? You know, or tell me about where you're from. You know, I've now got a piece of information. I've now got a connection with you. I now have a friendly face in the room I can look to Mm. because we have a brief, albeit brief, we have a relationship. That's a lot of it. You're kind of acting like you're the host and you care about the people and you want it to be a good event for them. I've tried to do that more and more. I spoke at at Podcast Movement last month and as people began to uh, come into the room, I think I, I kept up with maybe the first 10 or 12 people yeah. <laughs> and introduced, <laughs> yeah, introduced myself and said hello and, and asked similar questions. And then as I was uh, talking, and this was actually a Q&A, so I wasn't delivering a formal presentation, but, but as I answered questions, I, I keyed in on many of those uh, people. Uh, and it and it put me at ease and, and gave me some comfort and calmed the nerves a little bit, too. Well, and, and it creates a level of, of shared ownership of the outcome, right? Because yeah. now we're together in this. Right. And even if you do nothing more than stand at the door and pretend you're part of the convention staff mm. and you say, hi, welcome. Thanks for coming today. 
And if they got their hands full, don't try to shake their hand. Don't have that awkward moment. <laughs> right. You know, and, 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 you know, or I'll walk around, I'll walk between the rows. Hey, thanks for coming today. Glad you're here. I mean, it just, it changes the tone. First of all, most speakers don't do it. So it makes you stand out, but it changes their desire. I mean, you know, let's face it. The audience always wants you to succeed because they don't want to waste their time. But now you've made them want you to succeed at a different level because you've done something no one else has done. You've acknowledged the fact they're there and you've given them your appreciation for them showing up. His name once again is Michael Hudson. He's since become a good friend. And I highly recommend his book, Public Speaker Secrets, 52 Proven Ways to Increase Your Impact Every Time You Speak. Michael has helped me hone my speaking skills tremendously, and I think he can do the same for you. To find the full interview, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 138 for episode 138. Well, if my writing in the margins and all the highlighting and underlining I did inside my copy of the book from our next featured guest is any indication of the amount of insights I've gained, then look out because I'm about to be an awesome communicator. I'm talking about a book called The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design by Tim Pollard. And by presentation design, he doesn't mean slides. He means framework and structure for creating compelling presentations. Tim and his company have worked with LinkedIn, Salesforce, Disney, Rockwell, Ericsson, and Graybar, to name a few. And they specialize in training TEDx speakers. So needless to say, Tim knows what he's talking about. Devouring this book will help you to, in Tim's words, powerfully land a small number of big ideas. Mastering that is the key to any memorable and actionable presentation. I started off by asking Tim why he believes so many of us present so poorly. In fact, I asserted that it often seems to be the rule and not the exception. It absolutely is. Uh, if you look at most commercial companies, they self-assess their, the quality of their solutions at about an 8 out of 10. They self-assess their messaging of their solutions at about a 3.8 out of 10. If you look in the, the business presentation world, about 70%, 75% of presentations routinely evaluated at sort of mediocre or worse, less than a third are ever rated at good or better. So we're definitely not very good at this. I think there's a, an obvious answer and then there's a much more interesting and deeper answer. There are obvious superficial reasons why we present poorly. Uh, people tend to procrastinate, they're lazy. You've all seen that guy on a plane with the little T-Rex arms frantically adding bullets to a PowerPoint for a presentation they'll give when they land. And if you start you know, on a Thursday night for a presentation on a Friday, you're gonna reap exactly what you sow. Mm. For other interesting reasons, you've been told the wrong things. You've been told that the, the key is eye contact and body language. That's just ridiculous. But there's a whole industry telling you that. So you focus on those things and you're still horrible because those are the wrong things. Mm. And I think, I think one of the other more interesting ones is there's a, there's a low cultural bar that's acceptable. Everybody listening to this understands what I mean. When you've been to that presentation where you get slide bombed, where some guy plows through you know, 60, 90, I mean, even try, you know, 120 PowerPoint slides in an hour or something. It's ridiculous. Um, and nobody thinks that's good, but it's absolutely acceptable. Most of the companies we work with, that's the problem they're trying to solve. Um, so nobody thinks it works. We all throw these decks away. We switch off, we fall asleep, but we all do it to other people. So there's sort of a weird default, which is partly the gift that PowerPoint gave us. Now, all those reasons are real, but they're not the real reason. The real reason is far more interesting. The real reason we present badly is what I said at the very beginning. The, 
The human brain, yours and mine, is wired in very interesting and particular ways in the way it wants and needs to consume information. Mm. When you align with that, most incredible things become possible. You can be an amazingly effective communicator. But when you misalign with that, you're never going to be effective. And the problem is most people don't know how the brain is wired to consume information, and they don't know how to structure communication accordingly. Mm. Um, so let, let me give you an example. The human brain fundamentally operates at the level of ideas. It doesn't operate at the level of fact and data. So after any conversation, any meeting, any presentation, if someone sat down with you an hour later and said, you know, Jeff, what was that about? You won't recount data. You'll say, oh, it was kind of interesting. It was about this or this or this. Your brain hmm. is, it is biologically reductionist. It reduces things to the level of ideas. Well, if you know that, then wouldn't it be great to build communications that operate at the level of ideas? So I'm going to say, hey, there are three big ideas I'm trying to communicate. And in that way, I would be perfectly aligning with the way your brain wants to work. But nobody does that. If you look at almost all presentations, it's fact and fact and data and data. Fact and data are important, but they're important to support ideas. Most presentations have the facts and data, but they don't have the ideas. Incredible example from history on this. Um, O.J. Simpson trial, mm. seven months, mind-numbing prosecution testimony, just so much stuff. And the, the, the audience, in this case the jury, their brains were just desperately trying to make sense of this. And, and history clearly records this. It's ridiculous. Seven months of testimony ends up being overcome by one idea of eight words. And everybody listening already knows what the idea is. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now, that's extraordinary. Everyone was already thinking of it before I said it, but it was 22 years ago. The mm. trial the verdict came down in 94. That shows the power and stickiness of an idea that 22 years later, everyone listening to this was able to recall that without me even starting the phrase. So point being, if you understand the way the brain works, then incredible things become possible. But if you don't understand the way it works, you're always going to misalign with it. And PowerPoint, I'm not especially anti-PowerPoint, but PowerPoint is almost perfectly designed, or at least the way it's being used, to violate the way the brain mm. learns. Too much information, poorly structured, too textual, all those kinds of things. So the way we present is almost guaranteed to go wrong. And a lot of us, don't we, use those tools like PowerPoint or Keynote or Prezi or, or whatever the tool is. We jump into the tool and we start trying to put those ideas together in the tool rather than coming to the tool already having everything fleshed out. That is a really insightful observation. Almost nobody realizes. It's a little bit of a digression, but if you want to write a document, open up Word. If you want to do some calculations, open up Excel, because that's what they do. But PowerPoint is not a design tool. It doesn't ask you any questions. Who is the audience? What do they care about? What's the action you want them to take? What are the big ideas you need to communicate? There's a raft of critical design questions. PowerPoint doesn't ask you those, of course. It says, <laughs> click to add title, click to add bullets. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit like designing a building by just laying bricks. Um, you can't, it can't work. I don't dislike PowerPoint as a vehicle for delivering visuals. It's really good for that. It's very beautifully designed for that. But as a tool for thinking through the, the intellectual structure of an argument, it, it doesn't even exist. It's not what it does. So what people do is they throw everything on slides and they sort of try and reverse engineer the argument out of it. But almost always that doesn't work because you've got 200 slides. That's a horrible way of designing something. Mm. 
Well, when beginning to prepare for a presentation, then, Tim, what, what are some of the, the key questions that, that we have to ask ourselves to make sure that, that, that we do the job we want to do? Traditional thinking is not right on communication in most places. Most traditional thinking is wrong, but in one sense, it's absolutely right. You've got to understand who's in the room, what are their issues and interests and needs, what do they care about, what do they believe about the topic you're going to talk about, are they generally going to be in favor of what you're going to say, are they going to be uh, perhaps resistant to it? Um, So there's some sort of basic things about, yeah, like know your audience. Obviously, that's really pedestrian. We all understand that. Mm. I think there's probably... Two things that I would ask that are most critical. One is, what is the specific thing you want them to do as a result of this? If you think about it, almost all presentations in business and almost all communications are about action. We don't present for no reason. (laughs) I want a customer to buy. I want my boss to back this project proposal or business plan. I want my team uh, to support this kind of tough season we're going to be in. Um, You know, I want the community to back, you know, some proposed change in the town or whatever whatever it is. We present for an action. Um, So the first thing I would do is say, what specifically is that action? You'd be astonished how rare that is. The second question is derivative from that, because the second question is, okay, so what argument will lead to that action? Now, you might think that's incredibly obvious, but if you look at most presentations, the action has not been properly thought through. And especially clear is the, um, the argument is not taking towards an action. So You'll see a lot of sales presentations with, you know, first five slides of pictures of buildings and how many people we've got. It's a joke. You know, will the world map be slide three? How does, you know, a picture of a building help me buy your solution? Because I think your competitors all have buildings. They don't work in caves. (laughs) So what happens is we don't specify the action. We don't, we'll never create an argument that's going to drive towards that action. And so what happens is we run into this enormous problem of relevance. Most material in most presentations is not relevant to the outcome. It's background, tangents, unnecessary details, all kinds of stuff like that. And that has usually stemmed from not asking the right questions up front. And particularly the two questions are, uh, what's the action? The second thing you want to ask is, what is the audience's problem? that you are going to solve for them. If I wanted you to do something, Jeff, you're not going to do it because I'm a nice guy or I have an amusing accent. You're only going to do it if there's something in it for you. And almost always that comes down to solving a problem. So I might want you, for example, to, you know, to buy my new solution for hospital lighting. You're not going to do that because I want you to. You're going to do it because it solves a problem. So if I understand and can then communicate the problem that you have with lighting and the risk your hospital is running because your lighting is deficient, I'm much more likely to get the action. So I think if there were two foundational things I would do uh, before putting any sort of pen to paper in terms of building stuff is what, what is the action you want and what is the problem the audience has? That again is Tim Pollard, author of the book, The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design. Tim appeared in episode 157 of the podcast, so if you want to hear the entire interview, you know what to do by now. Visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash 157. It's time now for our fifth and final featured interview, and this is arguably the most recognized person ever to appear on the podcast, and also the oldest. In fact, just a few days ago, he turned 82. I'm talking about episode 184, which published in late September of 2017. 
featuring Alan Alda, who has written a book called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Now, much like Kathy, who we heard from earlier, Alan leverages improv to help people understand how to better relate to one another. I started off by asking how his experience as an actor has impacted how he relates to people day to day. Yeah, it really has changed my daily life. I think everybody who's studied improvising would say that it's changed them if they're actors, it's changed them as an artist, but it's also changed them as a person. And and more and more improv is being taught in other situations, you know, in business and so on, because it has something unique to offer that most other disciplines don't, which is that it, at the very basis of it, it connects you with another person in a very familiar way in a very short time. It's hard to get something done with another person unless you're on that kind of a close relationship. And beyond improvising, as I got better as an actor, I realized what it meant to relate to another actor. And in the beginning, I thought it just meant putting my face in theirs. So I was bending <laughs> over a lot <laughs> with, with hunched shoulders, just provoking them with my face. But you, you can actually relate to somebody if their back is turned to you, as long as you're taking in all the clues you're getting from them about what state of mind they're in, what state of emotions they're in. I've, I've found if I don't do that in life, I'm not really engaged with another person. And here's something that I found that led to a very, I, I, I think it's a radical idea. Hmm. And that is on the stage, I have to be willing to be affected by the other actor. And that means that I don't say my next line because it's in the script. I say it because the other actor makes me say it hmm. by something she says or does. And I have to be so open to that person. I have to be willing to be changed by the other actor in order for what I say next to be authentic. It'll have a certain flavor to it, a certain edge. And I find in real life when I'm listening to somebody, I don't think I'm really listening to them unless I'm willing to be changed by what they're telling me. And maybe not necessarily by the words they're saying. If they're telling me the earth is flat, <laughs> I'm probably not going to be changed to believe the earth is flat. There's too much evidence that it's not. But the underlying impulse of Maybe I can connect and be positively affected by the fact that they're trying to figure things out. I'm trying to figure things out, too. And we can maybe meet at that level. But I think we got to meet at some level. Otherwise, we can't have a really authentic exchange. I loved some of your examples in the book to this end when you shared stories about how you interacted with, say, the cab driver or... A delicatessen cashier and attempting to label uh, their emotions in your mind just completely changed your interactions with them in the process. I, I do believe that it did. I was looking for a way to so that I personally could have this experience of reading other people without having to go to an improv class because <laughs> I, I do improv a lot, but I don't do it every day. And I wanted I wondered if I could find a kind of emotional gym I could create for myself mm -hmm. or I could practice getting into an empathic relationship with another person. And by the way, by empathy, I don't mean compassionate. I just mean knowing what they're feeling, because 
that's a tremendous tool for for uh, communication. It can also be a tool for not so good things like con artists. <laughs> con artists use empathy and really do well with it, not to our benefit. So I don't I don't see it as a, a goal to make the world a better place. But it is a tool if you want to make the world a better place. It's a great tool, probably a necessary tool. So what I tried to develop for myself was this kind of habitual way of relating to strangers and even friends where I would really pay close attention to, to an estimate I could make of what they were feeling. I can't know for sure, mm. but if I can get a pretty good idea from the expression on their face, from the tone of their voice and that kind of thing, I felt if I named it, that would really nail it down and I'd, I'd develop my empathy. It turns out it seems to work just actually paying attention to the person, just noticing them, noticing their hair color, noticing their, their the color of their eyes. Sometimes I'd be talking to somebody for 10 minutes and I'd look away and I'd think, what's that face look like? And I'd see a blob instead of the face. <laughs> but they haven't really been letting them in. Mm. And the difference is, the difference that happens to me, and, and I think I've seen it happen to other people, is that instead of all my attention being on what I'm trying to communicate to them, my attention is on how they're receiving what I'm trying to communicate to them. And that's that seems to me to be fundamental to communication, because no matter how good my message is, if it doesn't land on them, then how good is it? And you make a great point. The responsibility is on us as the communicator, right? A lot of times I get frustrated with my wife because she doesn't understand something I've said. And when that happens, I'll often resort to saying silly things like, you, you realize I make a living talking, right? The problem is you, not me. And that usually doesn't go over very well, does it? <laughs> that sounds like it goes over great. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know what I do for a living? <laughs> yeah, you confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. it is our responsibility to make sure the message is landing. And that's a, that is also a radical idea because for centuries, teachers have been telling students, why don't you pay attention? Where's that stuff between your ears? <laughs> Learn this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember so many teachers telling me about the stuff between my ears, but they're not getting into my ears. <laughs> well, as you have taught people, Alan, from all walks of life, uh, improv, and it's been amazing to me as I've read the book, uh, the ways that's impacted people. Do you find that many of them, those without experience in improv, come to this process with a lot of apprehension? And, and if so, do, does that apprehension change through the process um, or they, they come out the other end worse for the wear? No, they, it, it, because the, the exercises are so much fun to do, mm. uh, people get caught up in them and really enjoy the fun. There's so much fun, in fact, I have to warn them not to regard them as trivial just because they're fun. Mm. Because the, the, the way we've organized it in our workshops, and you're right, it's for all different walks of life, scientists, doctors, uh, business people, women in business, and so on. What we try to do is make sure they understand the relevance of these exercises to their, their workplace life. And instead of doing scenes, we mo once they have the basics of the improv vocabulary, then we do role playing drawn from instances in their own particular workplace. And we keep reinforcing the idea that the exercises we did were not just warm ups, they're actual tools to use in these experiences that you have daily. 
Wow, what a treat that was. The one and only Alan Alda visiting us in episode 184, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 184 to dig into that interview in its entirety. If you'd like to uh, check out all of these and and, and find links to each of them in one place, then go to the uh, webpage created just for this episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 200 for episode 200. Thank you so much for helping Read to Lead reach the 200 episode milestone. I've heard from a number of people lately offering congratulations and some incredible feedback feedback, which I truly appreciate. In fact, just a couple of days ago, Stephen Maletto in iTunes left us a five-star rating and written review. Thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate that. You can do the same when you go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. That really goes a long way in helping other people discover the podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 